Welcome to the Am I Hunting Podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by a deer biologist with Michigan DNR to talk deer baiting and winter supplemental feeding. All right. Hello and welcome back to the Am I Hunting Podcast. So this episode is kind of like what the title entailed is that I'm diving into or baiting for deer as well as doing supplemental feeding during the winter time. Now this stemmed from a question my dad asked me on if there was any data on any of those changes to deer health or winter kill with baiting as well as supplemental feeding during the winter no longer allowed. Now I did some research prior to uh, reaching out to deer biologists and ultimately kind of across the board it showed that supplemental feeding is more of a detriment than a benefit to deer. Generally across the board the recommendation is you know don't do it but I wanted to dive into a little bit more so as you hear from um, the discussion you know, we dive into some of those issues and why why the recommendation is to not supplement feed or why it's you know not really encouraged. So joining me on this episode is biologist with Michigan DNR, Ashley Ottenreath, and she's got over a decade of experience. So she's really able to really speak on these issues, both on the research side as well as on the regulatory side. So so enough of this intro and let's dive into the conversation. All right, so go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, I guess, like I said, give us a little bit about your background and uh, a little bit about your history there. Sure. Yeah, my name is Ashley Ottenreath. I'm the deer program biologist with the Department of Natural Resources, specifically in Wildlife Division. And I cover the Northern Lower Peninsula, the Upper Peninsula, And essentially, I kind of oversee deer management for those areas and looking at things from regulations to legislation to um, hunting practices, data capture, all things of that nature that really just have to do with deer management. And I've been in this position uh, almost 10 years now. And I am out of the Gaylord area, which is in the northern lower. And background, um, went to Michigan Tech. I have a master's in forestry from there. And then uh, I was born and raised in Davis, California. Um, And I also went to school there and I got a uh, bachelor's degree in wildlife biology. So it's been a great run so far and really enjoy my work. I get to work with a lot of hunters um, and just a lot of wildlife enthusiasts. That's quite uh, the list of stuff that you do. So I didn't realize that you de- dealt so much in the the regulation as well. Yeah, that's probably more of what I do than anything else, in all honesty. Uh, didn't know that going into the job, but um, yes, it's a very heavy regulatory job, um, just in terms of trying to develop hunting regulations, uh, you know, that hunters want to see and will follow. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the primary reason I was wanting to reach out is because honestly, this has been a project that I've been trying to work on for probably a few months now. My dad actually brought up the discussion of, you know, with the changes in the baiting and, you know, supplemental feeding. Yeah. 
uh, he was kind of curious as to if there had been a data on you know deer health uh, across the state in regards to the fact that there wasn't as much you know food provided for you know deer and I yeah. did talk with uh, another biologist that here in the state and he pretty much said that you know it sounded more or less that that feed and the baiting and whatnot was you know kind of a, a side dish for deer and really didn't affect their overall health and then he kind of brought in about uh, that we really haven't had that harsher winters either so that uh, plays into a factor as well but I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on or I guess in, mm-hmm. in regards to the you know those changes and has there been any data or anything in regards to a decline in deer health as a result of it yeah sure I can definitely touch on those topics um, so I think you know it's important too to be clear about what the two different things are right so right. baiting versus supplemental feeding so baiting is simply feed put out for deer with the intent to harvest that animal over it okay so you're essentially um, luring or attracting a deer to an area in the hopes that you can then harvest that animal so it is not a great amount of feed um, that you would be put out and in fact before the baiting ban went in place and actually what's currently still in place in the upper peninsula is Um, It would be a a 10 by 10 area with a maximum two gallons of feed put out. Um, Of course, that can be replaced once um, the deer have gone through that supplemental feeding. Um, That is different. Um, So that is a practice typically seen in winter um, where feed is essentially put out um, for deer or other wildlife to essentially supplement them through the winter. And we actually have not allowed that in the um, lower peninsula of Michigan. Um, it is currently allowed in the upper peninsula of Michigan, but that is one, it's it's a pretty controversial practice and it's one that really probably honestly remains in place in the upper peninsula simply because it's so ingrained uh, in the culture up there. Most states do not allow supplemental feeding and I, I can get into the, the whys of that in a little bit. Um, As far as data goes, we felt really confident removing the practice of baiting in the Lower Peninsula for a couple different reasons. Um, You know, first and foremost, feeding wildlife of any kind is typically not a recommended practice. Um, You run a few risks doing that. Disease would be one of them. So in areas where you are putting feed down for wildlife, you do run the risk of increased chances of disease transmission. From the simple fact of, you know, if you think of it, you're you're putting food out, attracting animals that probably wouldn't have been there in the first place. And you're also encouraging high numbers of animals, high densities of animals to a single area. Not only that, but as you are putting this feed out and it's disappearing, you're putting more feed on top of it, you're replacing that in the same place. And so essentially any bacteria that may develop there, fecal matter, um, urine, saliva, it all starts to build up in that single area. And so you do definitely run an increased risk of disease transmission not only with having animals themselves come and congregate there and have nose-to-nose interaction, but then, you know, say just a single animal comes in later, they're then running the risk of consuming food that may have that, like I said, bacteria on there or um, saliva that already has some type of 
disease associated with it or the urine or feces. Chronic wasted disease can be transmitted um, through all three of those avenues sloughed off. Essentially, the, the prions um, are contained in those fluids um, or that fecal matter. And then other diseases such as bovine tuberculosis, you know, when you are encouraging nose-to-nose contact, that can certainly be a major cause of concern and spread of that disease. Okay. Now, so, with you yep, bringing up with the diseases and everything like that, mm-hmm. immediately that counter-argument that I've heard countless times, I'm sure you've heard it too, is that why are we concerned about deer, you know, being nose-to-nose or being in the same area where they're, you know, you see them out on their you know, right next to each other as it is. So um, the argument always is, what's the big deal then? Sure, absolutely. So um, you're exactly right that family groups, of course, are going to be more social um, than, you know, deer from just across the landscape in general. Yes, they will be more social. They will be more likely to transmit disease. But what we're doing when we put artificial food sources on the landscape is we are essentially congregating animals together that probably wouldn't have interacted in the first place. And so think of it this way. So deer can be territorial of certain areas. They typically, family groups do tend to move from one area to the next pretty consistently um, looking you know, for the big three, right? The, the food, the water, um, and the bedding areas. But when there's an ample food source that's placed in the landscape that you know is perhaps more enticing or simply more plentiful than other areas of the landscape other deer will come from other areas to seek out that food source it's just how animals are you know if you can have a free meal of course why in the world wouldn't you and so what you're doing there is you're encouraging animals that wouldn't necessarily have that much time together or any time together for that matter to then have that nose-to-nose contact. And again, like I had said, even if they aren't having the nose-to-nose contact necessarily and say it's at different intervals of the day that they happen to be coming in, you're still having this area that has already potentially been contaminated that you're then encouraging other animals to come to and feed from. And that's the huge difference between, you know, because a lot the other argument that we hear is like, well, I mean, they'll go to an apple tree that's you know, dropped apples and, and they can have nose to nose there. and They, you know, all congregate there. That's absolutely true. Except here's the biggest difference between these natural food sources and baiting or supplemental feeding. The natural food source, such as an apple tree with its apples on the ground is gone. Those are gone. They will not be replaced until the following year. And so for many diseases, for example, bovine tuberculosis, it will not survive Um, you know, the bacteria from that will not survive that period of time. It will have died at that point in time. Chronic wasting disease, yeah, that one's a pretty scary one because those prions, essentially, they're not alive, so they can't die. So they can't just sit there and essentially bind to that area. And that's a major concern of ours. And again, though, that brings us right back to there are going to be certain things we have no control over. We have no control over, you know, the natural movements of deer. We do, however, have control over human behavior. And so when we can remove certain higher risk practices such as baiting from the landscape, it really is our responsibility as good stewards of 
you know, simple wildlife and, 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 you know, Michigan itself, just our own landscape to really put those practices in place and remove baiting and feeding. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. You've, you covered that very, very well. Uh, so I, outside of the diseases, what, what are, what would be some of the other negative outcomes mm-hmm. from supplemental feeding? Yeah, so supplemental feeding is one, you know, I would say for the most part, you know, any wildlife manager is going to highly discourage supplemental feeding. And so that we talked about the disease risks associated with it, but there's also simply the, um, the risk that you run of increased human interaction, okay, so with wildlife, and that can have a lot of dangerous consequences associated with it. Um, you also run the risk of pulling, um, we'll say, we'll just stick with deer specifically, deer out of areas that they would naturally be in during winter, such as a a yarding area, for example, where there is food there and they have better cover. You run the risk when you start to supplementally feed somewhere else that you're going to pull those animals out of there. And sometimes they're trapped um, at certain points, you know, enough snow builds up, they may not be able to get back to those areas. Um, or they may have a natural migration pattern that we are then cutting off by offering this food source to them. And so oftentimes they can sort of lose that natural migration that they might have that maybe, you know, their mother and their mother's mother, mother taught them. But now we're kind of pulling them away from that. You also run the risk, too, of depending on where you're feeding, you know, the location are there people nearby? Are you near a, a well-populated road? You know, are you causing increased your vehicle collisions? So there are some safety concerns certainly associated with that. And then there's kind of this overall one where you really have to think, if we are truly having to supplementally feed an animal to get it through the winter, should it be here in the first place? And I'll use turkeys as an example, right? In a lot of areas of Michigan, we have turkeys that, you know, during winter, it's really hard on them. And they probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for us basically stepping in and ensuring that they survive those winters. Now, that may seem really harsh, um, that perspective of looking at it that way. But we have to sometimes think of it in terms, you know, what's the best for you know, the, the species itself, not necessarily that individual animal. And this is the hard part. And this is, you know, where being a wildlife manager, you have to make some, some difficult uh, decisions and rationales at sometimes, but, you know, is the best thing for that species to still be encouraged in an area where without human intervention, it would die almost every winter. They just wouldn't make it through. They're just not necessarily meant to be there. So those are kind of some of the big questions that we have to try and tackle as, as wildlife managers um, and try and help people understand why we have certain reasoning for what we do. You know, it is allowed in the Upper Peninsula. As wildlife managers, would we still allow that? You know, if we could, say, wave a magic wand, we probably wouldn't. It's a harsh environment for deer, but they can make it. They shouldn't need to be supplementally fed. And you are definitely running a very high risk of disease transmission in those instances. So, plus there are some other, you know, practices that are done with supplementally feed, specifically supplemental feed, 
where it's probably not the best feed to give them. Um, you know, there are things like lactic, lactic acidosis, um, where, you know, people see these deer in the winter and they really, they want to help them. So they put out, say, some corn for them. Deer are not used to having corn in the middle of winter. Um, it's been months and months, most likely, since they've had corn. And so oftentimes we'll get these calls from people. I don't know what happened. This deer, it's just dead right here. Can you please come and take a look? And we'll come out and it looks like a perfectly healthy animal. And we will go ahead and take a look to see what happened. And oftentimes we open it up and there's just a belly full of corn. And essentially what has happened is the deer's body went into shock. It just could not digest that corn and it essentially died from that. So we have to be really careful. We have to be extremely mindful that if we are allowed to do these practices such as supplementing, we are doing it in a safe way, um, not just for those around us, but then we're also making sure that the practice itself is safe for the animal to consume. So lots goes into supplemental feeding. Um, Like I said, most states would not allow it. And really, in all honesty, there's only a few extreme examples I could think of where, you know, we might move in and supplementally feed. And so like one example, really the only one I can think of is if a group of animals were was trapped somewhere, you know, for whatever reason. And, you know, in order to just um, give them some time or, you know, nature itself to be able to get them out of that area, maybe it's snow melt that needed to happen. You know, we stepped in to, you know, feed them, but that can't be a long-term thing. Um, even in those instances, you have to think, you know, is the best thing to try and, and feed them through this and, and have them be here? Or is the more humane thing perhaps, you know, to go ahead and take these few animals off the landscape? So again, this, these these are not easy decisions. They're not often easy conversations to have. Um, but science has really shown us, you know, the risks that we run when we do choose to feed wildlife. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you transitioned to a lot of my follow up questions about the about that. So the one yeah. that I did want to follow up with a little bit more is you know you know I've read in articles and you know people talk about that if someone's supplemental feeding, you know, getting those mm-hmm. larger groups of animals in, and then they essentially over over browse or over eat the habitat um, outside of that yes. supplemental feeding, and that can lead to you know deer starving and. Um, you know, being malnourished in that regard. Uh, how often does that occur? Is that something that's quite commonly seen? Well, I mean, so the tricky part with, you know, deer or elk, for example, they can often be their own worst enemy, right? And so a lot of times if they're moving into an area for the winter, it's often going to be one that, you know, maybe was recently harvested. And so it's got a lot of new growth. And so they're going to move in. And of course, that's pretty tasty for them. And so they are going to probably clean that area up pretty well, which of course then sets back the regeneration, the natural growth of that area. Um, But what it really comes down to when we're talking about, you know, is an animal going to starve to death? Are they going to really um, hurt the habitat that they're in? It really comes down to the length of winter more than anything else. Okay. Um, so, So... You know, a lot of people say, well, if it's really, really cold or, you know, if you get a really bad snowstorm, that's not really what does it um, for deer. It's really the length of winter. 
And so a lot of times what we see, for example, in the Upper Peninsula is deer are looking great going into winter, you know, after the first few months. Yeah, I mean, you can tell they've lost a bit of weight, but, you know, if we have spring, you know, at, at a decent time, they should be fine and come out of it fine. But oftentimes what we'll see, for example, you know, we've had those really late winter storms that kind of drag winter out for maybe another month. That's when we really see that critical period kick in. And you see oftentimes people just call it their puffy face. Deer get this really puffy look to their face. um, And really that is a sign that they're in distress at that point in time with the effects of winter, be it from just lack of good nutrition at that point in time, you know, and really having to work essentially every day, right? Burn those calories um, to continue to survive. That's really what does it. And, you know, that's when we start to see deer just no, no longer make it through the winter or, you know, does sometimes aborting their fetuses because they just, you know, their body just can't maintain that um, and keeping the doe alive at the same time. And so it's a really brutal you know, winter can really be a, a, a brutal equalizer for the deer herd, and especially in the Upper Peninsula. I mean, that is truly the northernmost range for white-tailed deer that we see um, behavior up there that we don't see anywhere else. We see a true migration of deer take place up there, and you really don't see that anywhere else in Michigan. And, and honestly, in most other states, you're not going to see big migrations of, of white-tailed deer either. Just in those, you know, northernmost areas that... Uh, they have to do it really, really to survive is what it comes down to. But habitat is a major factor. It absolutely is great. Deer are wonderful at adapting, but at the same time, you know, if they are really lacking in those crucial habitat areas, especially for winter, you are going to see the effects of that. And so you're going to see deer numbers come down um, due to loss of them during the winter. Okay. And then I guess diving into the habitat, mm-hmm. I had listened to a talk a little bit about kind of the breakdown of, you know, what deer eat, you know, what percentage of forbs to woody browse to mass. And mm-hmm. it sounded like um, from that talk is that most of the browse was uh, either forbs or even the, the woody browse. Uh, does that kind of hold true for Michigan or even between the lower peninsula and the upper peninsula of the breakdown of kind of what deer are seeking for their food? Um, so it actually really depends on the time of year for deer. Um, so, you know, if you think of it, coming out of winter and moving into spring, um, they're going to be trying to eat whatever they can, right, at that point in time. And so oftentimes that's going to be new shoots, new growth, um, pretty much things that you would think of for spring, right? Um, things, you know, just starting to blossom. As you move into summer, you know, you're really going to get um, – more of your well unfortunately if you're a farmer oftentimes that's when they're really going to be targeting you know your crop areas Um, like i said deer are wonderful at adapting and so they're going to target um you know kind of those high value areas where they can really essentially they don't know they're doing it but right this this is where they want their calories and so they're wanting that food and then as you move into fall that's really where you're going to get they're after fat Um, like many species are at that point in time. And so that's where you're going to get, you know, your acorns and they're going to really be trying to get that if they need it, those like high carbohydrate that will convert into fat at that point in time. So, you know, your apple trees, your um, oak trees, um, beech trees, things like that. They're really going to target those areas. And then as you move into winter, 
you know, that's when you're going to see them shift to more of this woody browse diet, right? Because that's what's on the landscape for them. And that's where, you know, anyone that practices supplemental feeding, that's where we really caution them to be extremely careful. Because, like I said, it's literally their digestive system switches over to this. And so as difficult as it can be to digest those, you know, they've evolved to do that. And so their bodies make it so that they can digest this woody browse diet and so that's why you have to be so careful if you're going to supplementally feed as to what it is you know we usually recommend if you can give them some type of you know like second cut alfalfa or you know um, hay of some kind because that's as close as you can get right to the woody browse that they're probably used to doing things like you know grain um, corn that's really going to be a shock to their system. And so we really don't recommend doing that. But yeah, it really depends on the time of year. I would say, you know, spring is when you're really going to see kind of those new shoots, new growth um, that they're really targeting. Um, And then the woody brows that they're really um, going to target is going to be in the winter. Okay. So, you know, with, you know, there's a growing popularity with hunters and whatnot where they're you know, wanting to do a lot more like habitat work uh, for mm-hmm. deer and deer hunting. So if someone yeah. was concerned about, you know, the deer health or wanting to make sure that they've got plenty um, going into winter, you know, what would be yeah. some uh, improvements that someone could make on their property to, you know, facilitate that instead of doing supplemental feeding? Yeah, absolutely. That is a great point. And um, to that, I would say, probably your best bet are going to be various tree plantings, um, both hard and soft mass. So when I talk about hard mass, I'm talking about, you know, for example, oak trees. When I talk about soft mass, I'm talking about, you know, apple or crab apple trees. Those can be great sources for deer to seek out. Um, and the really great thing is, you know, once you plant them in the ground and they start producing, then you've got years and years and years worth of habitat that you have done for that um, that animal, that family group, the generations to seek out. A lot of people are really big on food plots right now. Um, food plots are fine. It can, it can act as maybe some additional resource for that animal, additional nutrition, but really, I mean, honestly, the biggest benefit of a, of a food plot is, is probably something to hunt over. You know, it's, it's essentially a, a replacement for bait, you know, and, and sure, we can argue, um, you know, the benefits of, of what you're planting in a, in a food plot, but, you know, very few food plots are going to give you, you know, the long-term benefit that tree plantings can give you um, for those animals. I'm not saying don't do it. What I am saying is if you are going to put a food plot in, I would highly consider, you know, even on the fringes of that food plot, considering putting in some some trees as well, um, some mast bearing trees, because it can really give a great benefit, uh, like I said, for generations to come for deer. Okay. Yeah, because another, just popped in my head that I remember reading that, you know, a lot of, or essentially what it said was that, up to about 40% of the, I don't remember the terminology, if it was the calories or what kind of got deer through wintertime too, was their fat reserves. Um, yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And that's why in the fall, again, um, typically, for example, if you know of like a producing oak tree, 
oftentimes when you go there, you will see deer tracks um, because they're seeking out those acorns because those, those do have a fat, excuse me, a high fat content in them. Um, same with any other, you know, typically nut producing trees. So um, that's really what they're they're after, um, and that's really what they're going to rely on going into winter. Um, they can also get it through, you know, um, like I said, high carbohydrate um, resources as well because those will convert to fat. Um, they just have to eat more of them um, than if they were getting a good fatty, nutritious source from something else. So, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Um, and again, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm not telling people not to put in food plots. I'm just saying, you know, it's it's really good to think long term and to think truly about nutrition. Um, you know, what are deer finding naturally on the landscape that they really seem to seek out? Well, it, it tends to be you know, mass bearing trees in the fall. That's, that's typically what they're after. Okay. Gotcha. No, those are some good points. So I guess I want to transition just a little bit. Well, a little bit. I want to get back sure. into baiting because again, that's still such a hot topic, which I'm sure it, it comes up to you quite often. Whoop. So, you know, there's always a debate about, you know, how baiting should be laid out, you know, mm-hmm. to where it's not a detriment. Um, like you said, in regards to disease or anything like that. So what what would be the recommendations if if you were able to you know lay it out to where it be a, a considered like a safe alternative to you know supplemental feeding or over baiting in that regard? what What does that look like for a good baiting program? At least what would you think? Yeah, um, so I mean, the first thing I'll say, is what I would encourage any hunter to really try and track is, you know, their sightings that they're seeing, um, you know, of course, they record their harvests and things like that from year to year. And the reason I say that is because we do have scientific evidence and, and several research projects that have shown that actually um, deer tend to move more during the day when there isn't bait on the landscape. And so we also have evidence that shows that when there is bait on the landscape, deer tend to do to be more nocturnal. And so, of course, that then makes it harder for hunters, right? You're not t- typically going to be as successful if deer moving more at night than during the day when you're out hunting. You know, of course, the reasoning behind this is that if they have this food source that they can seek out again and again, why get up and move around during the day if you're just going to seek out your food source at night. Um, So that's just one kind of thing that I recommend to hunters is to try and track that because, um, you know, evidence has shown that typically once baiting has been removed from the landscape, um, hunters do tend to actually see more deer during the day. Um, But it might take a few years, right, for that to happen. So that's just sort of my first caveat there. If we're talking about how to safely bait, you know, um, you know, how to try and reduce disease risk on the landscape, you know, so spreading it out, um, like we were having people do before we did no longer allow it on the landscape in the lower peninsula. So we had a 10 by 10 area and we had no more than two gallons at any one time. So I think that's a decent practice. I think one thing, if we could add, to that, you know, and this again is in a perfect world if we could do this, you know, just from simply a lowering disease risk uh, transmission 
would be to have people um, move the site each time. And so what I mean by that is, you know, okay, so you go and you set up your 10 by 10 area and you pour out, you know, your two gallons that you have. Once that's gone, you would then need to move to a different site um, and set up another 10 by 10 area and put out your two gallons. Now, one thing I, I, I couldn't really tell you is, you know, how far away would that have to be um, in order to, you know, reduce your risk? That I'm not really sure of. I don't know that there is a good answer, but, you know, that would be one step where at least you may still be congregating the same animals to a 10 by 10 area to consume that food, but you are at least moving the spot so you are not getting a buildup of the urine, the feces, and the saliva in the same spot over and over and over again. So to some degree, you likely are lessening the risk, but again, you know, you're still encouraging that that nose to nose. So one other thing, you know, that could be done would be, for example, having baiting only allowed for a very set amount of time. Um, so for example, if we have, you know, our two week firearm season, maybe baiting is only allowed the first three days. Um, we do have a couple seasons, you know, that that is the case. Um, our Liberty Hunt is an example of that where bait had been allowed to be out um you know i believe it's five days prior to the season starting and then it's a two-day season and so at the end of that you know baiting would no longer be allowed um, on the landscape and it would have to be cleaned up if it wasn't already okay so those would be two practices that i would you know say if if we had to allow baiting you know those are two that would probably make it at least that would lower the risk okay no that i I kind of was kind of holding back a little bit on asking that question. I know this it's not a simple answer um, in that regard, but I think you answered it well. Um. Happy to talk about this stuff. It's it's interesting <laughs> stuff. It's it's hard because people are so passionate about it. Yeah, and, you know, it's yeah. It's always hard to tell people. Well, I know you've done this for twenty years, but now you can't. Yeah, it, that's a difficult pill for anyone to swallow. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but no, you brought up a really good point too about, you know, the, I didn't realize that there was actually, you know, research that had kind of shown that that deer do go nocturnal around those bait piles because, mm-hmm. I mean, having used bait piles in the past, it, you you almost anecdotally saw that, you know, that you know after a few, you know, a few times of being out there, that sure enough, all those deer are hitting the bait pile after dark. Yep. So, yeah, you know, I'm not too surprised I'm, that I'm, that's what they showed. Yeah, right. And why not? You know, I wouldn't get up if I didn't have to and, and walk around and, and risk my life if I knew there was a pile of food waiting for me that night. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The one thing I thought that I thought could work is probably pretty close to what it was with the two gallons is, you know, you see, you know, talked about quite a bit when you're talking about bear, um, bear baiting, where you don't want to put out yeah. so much bait that, you know, the bear doesn't have to worry about getting there earlier you know, whatnot, because it knows that there's going to be plenty of food there. So you typically, you know, kind of ration the bait to whereas, you know, the bear has to come in sooner, knowing that if it lingers too long, it may not have any available for him. Uh, right. So that's why yep. I thought maybe that with the two gallon thing, that that would kind of follow that same suit where it's, you know, if you could do a small amount, it would pull those deer there knowing that if they don't get there in time, you know, they may not get anything, but... 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the two gallons was just, again, it was, um, honestly, it was like a, an easily measurable amount, and it was, you know, a small enough amount that it could be, you know, cleaned up either by an animal or a person off the landscape when need be, you know, fairly easily and quickly. Gotcha. All right, so let's go ahead and get off of the baiting and supplemental feeding, because I did want to dive into with the recent change of the the universal doe tag and yeah you know kind of mm-hmm. what the thought process is why the state wanted to go that direction and then we can talk about a little bit what the concerns are um with that as mm-hmm. well yeah absolutely um do you want me to just dive right into it yeah let, let's just do that yeah uh-huh. sure yeah, so um, this past season was our, our first season with this universal antlerless license. Um, and essentially what it did was um, you would buy an antlerless license, and that would be good for one antlerless deer essentially anywhere in the lower peninsula and then in some parts of the upper peninsula, basically the south central area. And so it just really made it really convenient for people, um, you know, pretty similar to our, our essentially our single or combination deer license. Um, whereas those, though, are good, obviously, anywhere in the state when you buy it. But we got pretty close with the universal antlerless license. Um, we felt that this was a good change to make because we wanted to make it easier for hunters. Um, you know, if they wanted to hunt multiple places, you know, if they wanted they weren't, uh, you know, head up to one deer camp, um, but also wanted to hunt back home, you know, that they would have that ability and they weren't having to buy multiple licenses to do so. And really for us, the big one here is we want as many hunters that are still on the landscape to be as successful as possible at harvesting deer. And this is really important to us because, you know, I think if you, th- you know, 20 years ago, Michigan had almost a million hunters. Um, And since that time, we've lost more and more and more hunters. And now we have lost uh, almost 50% of our hunters are just gone. We do not have them anymore. And it's not just Michigan. This is a nationwide phenomenon. But Michigan is one of the top five states in the nation for highest number of in-state hunters. And so it's a really big deal for us. We recognize that we will not get those hunters back. We basically will never go back to having almost a million people in the woods hunting deer. And really it's because we can't recreate the phenomenon that occurred as to why that happened. And really that was the baby boomer generation that, you know, really picked up hunting essentially after World War II, um, you know, and really after like Great Depression, World War II, Um, It just became sort of ingrained in that generation of people. And so they, of course, passed that on to future generations, but never as strongly as that particular generation, that baby boomer generation. And so we recognize we're going to continue to lose hunters. We also recognize that deer are extremely good at adapting to their environment. So we have seen deer numbers increase across the entire landscape, everywhere from Um, you know, the forested areas of the Upper Peninsula, all the way down to, you know, Detroit. Um, You know, we know that deer have really high numbers in many urban areas and really everything in between. 
um, suburban areas, um, agricultural areas, you name it, deer are probably there in some way, shape, or form. So knowing this, we are really kind of moving from being pretty darn conservative in our past with our licenses, um, especially our antlerless licenses, to really now being a lot more liberal um, with how we put them out there. And again, this is more reflective of the fact that we know we're still losing hunters and we know that deer numbers are likely going to increase across the landscape. And so our ability to truly manage deer numbers across the landscape has been lessening ever since that time. And now we're moving to a point where hunters probably won't be able to continue being our primary management tool for the deer herd. Um, We don't know what those other tools are going to be at this point in time. Um, That's something that I think a lot of wildlife managers are looking at and um, thinking about is, you know, how do we manage deer into the future with fewer and fewer hunters when they have been the primary management tool for about 100 years now? That's a really big shift to have to make. Um, So to bring this back to the universal analyst license, we want to make sure that hunters have every opportunity available to them to be successful. Now, we also made it so that statewide, anybody um, who's interested can get 10 of those universal analyst licenses. So here's the caveat to that, because a lot of people kind of balked and said, oh my gosh, are you crazy? There's no way I want, you know, 500,000 hunters getting 10 analyst licenses apiece. So, um, unfortunately, and I really do mean this, unfortunately, um, less than 40% of hunters buy a single antlerless license. Less than 10% buy two. You can imagine what percentage buy three or more. It's very small. So, and that's, that's just purchasing the license. That does not guarantee a harvest. Okay, so we have very few that actually purchase an antlerless license and actually harvest a deer. So in Michigan, if we're talking about, you know, what our success rates like, typically we sit at about 50% of those that purchase a license tend to fill a tag, either a single, a combination, or an antlerless, an antlerless tag. Typically under 30% fill an antlerless license, typically under 30% fill, you know, a buck, uh, we'll call it a buck tag, a single or a combination license where they're harvesting a buck. Gotcha. So we, we still have high harvest numbers. If we're looking nationwide, you know, Michigan still does quite well with our harvest. Um, you know, we tend to fall in the top, you know, five to seven in the nation. But You know, we have to look at it from our perspective of, you know, what is this going to do to the habitat with more deer on the landscape? What is this going to do um, with social acceptance of of deer on the landscape? Um, You know, that probably means things like increased deer vehicle collisions, increased human interaction, um, potentially increased uh, disease across the landscape when you do get these higher numbers. And so right now we're kind of trying to figure out what other tools are in the toolbox as we make sure that the tools we know we have, which are hunters, man, they have every opportunity available to them to harvest an animal. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, kind of bring back to, I'm sure the argument that you've heard of 
you know, when that first came out about the, the universal tag, especially how many you could purchase, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, basically what is the DNR doing? They're trying to kill all the deer, but I think you covered pretty good that, you know, the deer numbers are up and that, you know, even though you have that many tags available, you know, not everyone's going to buy them and even less people are going to be successful with that as well. So I think you covered mm-hmm. that quite well. Uh, one thing I did, uh, think about too was that you know is there or has there been any thought about you know if, it, if that universal tag would need to be adjusted at all for you know let's say areas that have higher deer um, numbers compared to others where you know potentially those lower deer number areas would get over hunted to where the you know numbers wouldn't be able to be sustained um, is there any consideration or any concern with that so I wouldn't say we have much concern with that at all in the lower peninsula, simply from a couple different perspectives. Um, so the first being, if there are low deer numbers in an area, um, if the deer aren't there, they're not going to be harvested. That's just kind of how it comes, uh, you know, just, just how it comes down to it. Um, so for example, you know, if someone's hunting in a low, low deer number area, they're probably number one, not going to see a bunch of deer coming across the landscape if they happen to and they do take one you know boy it would have to be extremely 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 low deer numbers for that to even truly make a difference deer are very prolific animals Uh, most of the time they are having twins if not triplets of course they're not guaranteed to survive but boy a lot of them sure do especially as you move farther south in the lower peninsula Um, so you know, I would say from that perspective, you know, we probably aren't harvesting deer at a high enough rate to even keep the population stable. So what I mean by that is, you know, the number of deer we harvest each year, we are not matching um, the fecundity rate that deer have. Um, So more deer are likely surviving than um, we are harvesting so that we, so populations are continuing to um, go up likely each year now areas like the upper peninsula it's a little bit different because winter is a major factor there that can impact populations Um, we don't have the universal antlerless license available in all areas of the upper peninsula because of some concerns regarding that though you know i mean i think an argument could be made that you you could have some there um, and that it's actually really important to have antlerless harvest in even in areas with low deer numbers because you want to make sure that, you know, deer are staying at certain levels so that habitat can respond to that, right? So if you have low deer numbers in the area, oftentimes that's due to poor habitat. If you have poor habitat, why? Um, let's look and see why. Sometimes, you know, it's going to be due to soil. It's going to just be due to the fact that maybe it's just poor condition, but a lot of times you have some factors that are influencing that. Oftentimes that's deer. So some areas you want deer numbers to stay low um, and you want to give that habitat a chance to really bounce back. So, you know, that's something about the other point I wanted to make. Um, You brought up, you know, what if, you know, there are low deer numbers in an area. So about 84% of our harvest typically on average is on private land which tends to have better habitat. Um, And so we just have higher deer numbers in general there. And we have a lot of people hunting private land. 
so your areas of public land um, where we also have a lot of hunters but typically we don't have maybe the best habitat or the best soil quality um, you're going to see a lot lower harvest there anyway um, so we just we do not have the big concern over that that and of course the fact that we just don't have the hunters anymore gotcha. you know i think if this had been 20 years ago we would have probably never implemented something like this um, but because we recognize we've lost half our hunters on the landscape and we're going to continue to lose what well, i think we're projected in the next 10 years to lose another 25 percent really no okay yeah that's, so that's, it's, it's pretty scary in all honesty <laughs> yeah yeah um so the last thing i wanted to ask you about with the the doe tags is um, i had seen on the ndas or the formerly qma qdma's um you know annual report that you know it does show that there's been a growing trend of more and more bucks being killed in comparison to does or antlers deer and you know they talk quite a bit about trying to keep the the doe to buck ratios at a certain uh, you know percentage yep. was that a consideration yep. too of opening up the you know the number of antlers tags available is to try to balance it out because i saw that they even just showed um from this newest report that they just released that um it's even showing that almost a record high number of bucks across the country that have been killed um yeah um i mean yeah, that's certainly a part of it. I mean, I think in general as managers, you know, at a minimum, we'd really like to see like a one-to-one harvest ratio. So for every buck harvested, we'd really like a doe harvested as well. Um, just from the simple perspective of getting people in Michigan specifically more acclimated to being okay with taking an antlerless deer. You know, for years and years, um, it was really seen as almost ungentlemanlike behavior to take an antlerless deer. Um, you know, if you look back in our history, people used to buy doe tags just to burn them. And so we're really trying to help people get away from that mentality because really, you know, Michigan is a buck-centric state. There's no doubt about that. When a hunter goes out, I know very few hunters that I've spoken with that are simply after an antlerless deer or any deer. The vast majority I know, they're after a buck for whatever reason, and that's fine. Um, you know, that's their time to get out and enjoy nature. It's not for me to, to judge or, you know, tell them, oh no, that's wrong. But what is important is I wanna make sure that hunters have the facts. Um, and the fact is that it's antlerless deer that control the population. And so we need to be mindful of that, that, you know, if we're having overpopulation issues, it's really important for us to um, make sure people have the information they need so that they can make the best decision on what to harvest. And if people are concerned about disease, if they're concerned about overpopulation, um, at a minimum, I would highly encourage them to take an antlerless deer. Now, I'm not saying don't take a buck. Sure, take a buck, absolutely. But consider taking an antlerless deer or two as well. Um, because you're, you know, at that point, you're really doing your part, um, just being a really good steward of the land at that point in time, because we do have these major concerns and we will need to focus on that in the future. You know, so that's, that's what I would say there is that, you know, you don't need to necessarily change your practice of targeting bucks, but maybe just be open to taking an antlerless deer or to, um, or even if you're hunting in a group, you know, if you're, if you're at deer camp, 
try and think about, you know, okay, well, so we've, we've taken three bucks. Um, maybe now we can head out. Maybe we're okay with taking some antlerless deer as well. Because the more we can start to come around to that and really start thinking in that more holistic perspective, the better we are um, headed into the future. Um, you know, because again, knowing that we won't have as many hunters on the landscape, knowing that, you know, unfortunately, you know, disease will probably only get worse, especially with chronic wasting disease. You know, what are some things we can do now um, to try and help make things better into the future? So, and that's not to say we're not gonna encourage young people. We absolutely are. We just recognize that really there's probably no way that enough young people can begin to replace the older hunters that we're losing. Um, So what can we do? to help shift management on the landscape. No, that, you, you just brought up some really good points and you kind of brought it all, all the way back full circle there. So it's, it's complicated and a lot of people are concerned about it, but um, I think you covered it quite well. So, uh, and we're almost up on our time here that uh, we had kind of discussed. So, but I just want to follow up with, you know, is there anything else that we didn't really cover that you think would be important um, to discuss or to, you know, bring to light as well? You know, um, I would say, um, especially in Michigan, you know, we try and put a lot of information out there for people that are interested in it. Um, and so I would always encourage people to check out our website, mi.gov slash deer. Um, there's lots of information on there. You know, deer forums are great. Um, and sharing, you know, information through those are great, but, um, you know, if you're really looking for kind of the hard facts um, and the data, I would highly encourage you to check out our website. And also, I mean, if you just have questions in general to contact your local biologist, um, or you can contact me directly with deer questions, um, we're always happy to take those. Because um, we want to make sure that that hunters and, and just people that enjoy wildlife have the right information, um, the correct factual information in their hands. Sounds good. Well, I think that's a good way to close it out. So again, thank you for coming on and taking time out of your day to discuss this stuff. So as I know, it's a little past, uh, you know, deer season, so it may not be as pertinent, but it's good information nonetheless. So absolutely. Well, no, this has been fun. And if anything else comes up deer related, just um, give me a shout. I'm happy to talk with you more. That sounds great. All right. Well, I'll let you go and you have a good day and you take care. All right. Thank you. You too. All right. Thanks. All right. So that's it for the conversation with Ashley. You know, she put out, laid out a lot of information there. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to follow up with is what she was saying about that we are, we are losing the number of hunters um, within the state as well as across the country. You know, the concern of the, for the management side is how to manage deer with less and less hunters. So I want to dive into a little bit about, you know, with the hunter numbers going down, are we seeing a trend with the number of deer harvest going down as well? And I ended up going to uh, the National Deer Association's website and pulling up the past deer reports. So I went back to the year 2009. So looking at... The number of deer harvested, again, this is estimated a little bit, but so for 2009, the estimated deer harvest for Michigan was 400 
and 35,000 deer. Now that's including both doe and buck. 2014 was the low that we had seen over the past decade. That number was down to 322,000 deer. And then again, it started going up back up again. We did hit a high again in 2018, back up to 300,000 or 366,000. For 2019, we did see a drop again down to 363,000. So overlooking the past 10 years, you know, we're looking at a drop of nearly, well, pretty close to 70,000 deer uh, declined. Now, in some of the early estimates, there was an uptick in 2020. Uh, it's estimated somewhere around 400,000 deer were harvested for the state. Now, that is probably something that's not going to be sustained because there was a significant jump in the number of deer hunters for the year 2020. Generally, across the board, across the nation, everyone's kind of saw that, and no one's really expecting those numbers to be sustained. So overall, over the past decade, we have seen a decrease in the number of deer being harvested. So getting back to about, you know, the deer numbers still relatively high. You know, we are seeing a drop in the number of deer being harvested. And there is a increase in the number of deer. So getting back into kind of where the deer numbers are. So I wanted to get kind of a bigger span. So I was able to find, so as of the, the late 1980s, the deer population was estimated to be 1.3 million deer. And the estimates for the deer herd in the recent years is closer to about 2 million. And even just going back 10 years ago, it was estimated to be about 1.7 million deer. So we are seeing an increase in the number of deer population within the state. So, and just kind of looking at the data there, you know, we're seeing the trend, less hunters, less deer being harvested, and an increase in the number of deer within the state. So that was one thing I wanted to kind of touch base on and kind of give some of those numbers of what I found and kind of what I'm seeing that it doesn't look like we're running into issue of less deer throughout the course of the state. But that's just something to think about. And certainly if you want more information, you know, go over to the DNR website. You know, there is some good research out there, so you can find some answers on on some of the things and I'll even post the resources I found that I found in my research and you can look it up and read through it yourself. So I think that's a wrap for this episode. So and I'll say it again, get out there, be safe and have fun. <laughs>